listener production. The following podcast contains adult themes, explicit language, and drug references. Parental advisory is recommended. Hi, I'm Dave Gleeson and this is These Days, the greatest moments in Australian music, episode two. When we last left our story, the Australian pub rock scene was still in its infancy. Bands like Cold Chisel, The Angels and Skyhooks were cutting their teeth in pubs and venues up and down the eastern seaboard. They were leaving their mark in blood, sweat, tears and beers. It was going out with friends and having a great time and watching your favourite band. And toward the end of the 70s, a powerhouse band with an electric name took pub rock to the world. ACDC were making their first appearance. It was like Ted Nugent, Blue Oyster Cult, Journey, I mean, and they were just so different and so they blew it away. But while the 80s saw groups like Midnight Oil, Divinals, Men at Work and In Excess making it big in America, the man who opened the door sadly wouldn't be around to see his impact and influence on them. The rock group ACDC was found dead last night in a parked car in South London. Scotland Yard said the body of 30-year-old Bon Scott was discovered by a friend who had left him in the car hours earlier to sober up after a day's drinking. Well, for, for me, uh, I was in, I, it, was, it was disbelief at first because I had heard through a, uh, one, a girlfriend of his that called me and uh, she seemed uh, in panic. And uh, so, uh, I mean, I just heard from her and then another girlfriend of his had called and uh, you know, she, she was at a loss because she had been looking for him, trying to track him down. And, uh, and then I got a hold of the, the guy who, who was managing us at the time and uh, he, he said, well, he had heard, you know, a, he, but he at first thought it had just been a rumour and uh so he he was trying to get information and then he 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 came back to me because uh, i'd heard it was about in the afternoon i'd heard late in the day and uh he got back to me later and he he said it looks like it is him and from from that point on i was just in shock that was angus young speaking about the day he heard of his acdc bandmate bon scott's tragic death due to acute alcohol poisoning in February 1980, even the worst news took time to filter back home from overseas. Here's FIFA Riccobona, who was working with ACDC. I wouldn't believe it. I just wouldn't believe it because I'd spoken to him. You know, he'd been with Angus and Malcolm. He said, FIFA, you've got to hear some of the riffs they've come up with. He said, I can't wait to get into the studio. He was so excited. And they were going into the studio almost immediately the following week. When they said, you know, he'd passed, he'd, he'd died, um, it's like, no, it's the furthest thing that, no, it couldn't possibly be. And I couldn't deal with it. I, I mean, I I didn't believe it. And it wasn't till we actually had the funeral and his casket came past. And it was then that, you know, it came home to me that, yes, he was. He was dead. But up to that point, he was still away. Record producer Mark Opitz, who started his career with ACDC's musical team, Vander and Young, was working at the band's spiritual home, Alberts, when the news broke. Yeah, I think... Um... Jimmy Barnes came in, in looking really down. And, and I said, Jim, what's going on? He said, Bond's dead. I said, what? I said, that's impossible. So next day I was in, in the Alberts and of course, you know, uh, uh, FIFA and George were there and 
and Harry and, and Ted and you know they said yeah yeah Bond's died of a you know swallowed his own vomit while in the back of a car because he couldn't get into his flat. ACDC had been writing a new album at the time of Bond's death. Naturally, the young brothers wondered if they should continue, but Angus says a chat at Bond's funeral made the decision for them. His father had had a word with me and Malcolm and he had said, you should keep going as a band, he said, because Bond, to him, it was the best thing that he'd ever done, teaming up with you guys, and uh, he said Bond would have carried on, so if it had been one of one of us, and so that was good to hear from uh, his father because it didn't make you feel like, uh, you know, you were, you were sort of cheating on him or anything. So just five months after Bond's untimely death, ACDC released not only their most successful album, but one of the highest-selling rock albums of all time, Back in Black. Their new frontman was Englishman Brian Johnson, who the band knew from his previous outfit, Geordie. But some in their orbit, like Mark Opitz, thought maybe Jimmy Barnes' brother, John Swan, or Swanee as we know him, might have got the gig. Swanee was one of the few people allowed in on ACDC sessions. He's perfect. Got the hell of a range, you know, he can do all the high stuff. And um, and I was so surprised when it was Brian Johnson. Brian had made some remark, be it offhand, be it flippant, whatever, if I ever die, that's the guy I should get. It was, you know, from Geordie who I'd also seen in Australia in, in the 60s, you know, when they were just a young band. They toured. I saw them at Festival Hall in Brisbane. But so I knew that the, the, the power of this guy, you know, we knew that he was going on. But I was forever thought that John Swan would have been the perfect fit for the band. But, you know, obviously, I'm sure he came into calculations, but Bond's wishes... The conspiracy theories around Bond's death and his possible input into Back in Black continue to this day. Some fans find it hard to believe that some of the most Bond-esque lyrics were written by Brian Johnson, who would hand over all lyrical duties to the Young Brothers just a few years later. Others point to reports Bond had left lyrics behind in a notebook. ACDC have always denied this theory, saying Bond's only involvement was playing drums in an early jam session. FIFA Riccobono says the rumours around Bond's death and what part he played in Back in Black don't scan with the man she knew and what he told her days before his death. Why would he write a song about himself dying? And when did he write it if he didn't write it with the band? You know, and he, and he spoke to me and he told me that he he was with Man, Malcolm and Angus and he couldn't, he, he, he didn't say, I've written an album. He said to me, you, have, you should hear the riffs they've come up with. When I hear all this other stuff, they can tell you whatever they like. And that's fine. They can write whatever they like. But I was there. In 1981, a year after Bond's passing, ACDC would land their first American number one album, For Those About to Rock, We Salute You. While their sales and lineups would fluctuate, ACDC still finished the 80s of one of the biggest arena rock acts on the planet. And Brian Johnson says he quickly realised the secret to their success. I'd describe them as a, as a rock and roll band that's never changed, you know, and won't take any change. I think that one of the nicest things I heard was Angus when a, an interviewer in, uh, in America said to him, Angus Young, how can you sit there and take all this fame when he said you've done 11 albums and everyone's the same as the next one? And Angus said, that's wrong. We haven't done 11 albums all the same. We've done 12. And that's the SEDC. <laughs>
And although it's been over 40 years since Bond's death, his short but unforgettable time as the cheeky face of Australian rock left its mark. You know, when you hear Long Way to the Top, how many times you could hear that over and over and over, and that was 40-something years ago, and it still stands up to the test of time. So to me, that's what stands the test of time that makes him turn into this, you know, bigger-than-life character after all these years is when you hear the body of works that were just so amazing. Here's Andrew Farris from In Excess. How good is ACDC? They were the loudest band I've ever seen. And, and my band used to play pretty loud, but that was louder, definitely. Um, but they were just awesome. Uh, always have been. If ACDC introduced the world to the power of our rock music, in Melbourne, one band were about to showcase Australian culture via a global hit. Men at Work had fine-tuned their distinctive sound with two years of shows at tiny Melbourne pub The Cricketer's Arms. Here's members Colin Hay and Greg Ham on those early days. The Cricketer's Arms gave us an opportunity to play every week, regardless of whatever else was on offer. And it was a real personal little gig, so people sort of treated it as their own special little secret, you know, and it's like, come down to The Cricketer's Arms and see this band, so... It's a free gig. Free gig. It was a small venue so even if we only had 50 or 60 people there it was packed when we put 150 people in there they were hanging from the rafters i guess the the other side of the the critter's arms was that that because we were on the ground level and people were literally standing right in front of you you knew whether what you're doing was working or not you could see whether you'd got their attention or whether they'd just gone off into an alcoholic haze and yeah the end of my saxophone got used as as an ashtray i had a an empty can of beer shoved down the end of it. Um, I had people talking into the end of the saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who they thought they were talking to. While Minute Works debut single in 1980 didn't chart, the B-side would wind up having a spectacular second wind. It was a stoner reggae groove called Down Under, which Colin Hay wrote about Australia's drinking culture and a particular yeast extract. I think in the context of Australia, it's probably, you know, most people know what Vegemite is, but overseas, I think that they people should really be turned on to Vegemite consciousness, really. Mm. Men at Work promptly scored a breakthrough hit with Who Can It Be Now, followed by a reworked and poppier version of Down Under. Both songs would reach number one on the American chart in 1982, as did their debut album, Business As Usual. Here's Triple M's Cat Lynch. Minuteworks' debut album sold 6 million copies in America alone. So not bad for an album recorded in a pretty small studio in Richmond and not far from the local pub that they used to play at. A lot of these pub gigs they were doing in Victoria, they were second and third support act and earning about $100 a night to split between all of them to live and eat. So this is a wonderful story about how quickly your success can turn around because not long after... Men at Work are winning the Grammy for Best New Artist in 1983 and even today they remain the only Aussie to win that category. While the pressures of instant and intense fame led to Men at Work splitting by 86, Colin Hay told us he was still proud of the educational role they unexpectedly adopted in America. At that particular time, most of Americans' knowledge of the rest of the world was, was, was shocking. People didn't know anything about anywhere, hardly, you know. And so there was a high level of intrigue about not only our band, but Australia in general. You know, they were, they were fascinated by this place that they didn't really know anything about. And, um, I mean, it was, it was ludicrous the kinds of questions you get asked. About. The main one being, you know, do they speak English in, in Australia? You know, and we would always say, well, a form of it. It's a form of English, yes. Back in Australia, one young band and their ambitious manager were watching Men at Work blitz the world without compromising their sound. Hi, this is Michael Hutchins from In Excess. 
In excess would even open for men at work in the US during 1983. That included playing the US Festival in California on a bill that included David Bowie, U2, Motley Crue and Van Halen, plus another young Aussie band, the Divinals. Here's Colin Hay. I mean, uh, Michael was great. Uh, the, whole, the whole band was great, but they would play that song. I always loved that song, Don't Change. That was their song they had at that particular time, which is, I think, one of their, one of their best songs still. I think it's, it's such a great song. You know, we were kings of the world at that, at that particular time, and they, were, and they were just coming up, and you could, you know, you could, you could tell um, you know, what was going to happen to them, and, and indeed, that's exactly what did happen. <laughs> NXS had formed in Sydney in 1977. However, when the Farris family relocated to Perth the next year, the whole band followed them. They began, as we all do, by playing covers before shoehorning a few originals into their sets. By 1980, they'd got themselves a very eager manager, Chris Murphy, and Marco Pitt saw up close how driven NXS were from day one. The way to break into America is you must get your career in sync at the start with internationally rather than make it big in Australia and become the biggest band in Australia and then try and go to America. But the bands that did get their career in sync early were obviously the Bee Gees, uh, obviously ACDC, and In Excess was another one because, you know, they could see what had gone on before. And, yes, it was only up, I think it was their third album, Shabu Shabar, that they um, decided to do that. But Chris Murphy... You talk about driving forces, their manager was definitely the driving force. The band, I, I think if they were managed by anybody else, they would have been a great band and they would have done really well in Australia. But Murphy, he actually said to them, we want to dominate the world. We want world domination. That's what we're after. As well as their ambitions, the band was still experimenting with their sound, as Michael Hutchins explains. We are pretty, you know, pretty out there at that stage. We were sort of really pushing it, see how far we could get with audiences, you know. And also we were one of the first bands playing kind of funk music and stuff, and that was pretty tricky, you know, because Australian audiences were used to Akadaka cold chisel, the mineral oil, and it was very heavy guitar, chords and stuff like that and we're up there with you know we had congas i think at that stage tim used to do and it was very funny it was um searching for an identity basically and you know pretty daggy actually in a lot of ways but pretty interesting in other ways the stage presence of singer michael hutchins was their not so secret weapon as triple m legend lee simon recalls they had the benefit of having great players in the band, a brilliant songwriter in Andrew Farris and an astonishing lyricist in Michael Hutchins who also had the thing that everybody wishes they had as a front man and very few people have managed to pull off and that's a natural swagger and charm and appeal and it wasn't just women who loved him, guys loved Michael Hutchins. He owned the stage. Here's Steve Kilby from The Church. Michael was a great singer, he was a great lyricist, and I've got to say this, this word's thrown around a lot, charisma. He is the only person I've ever met in my whole life who actually had the quality of charisma. He was like magic. Two years and hundreds of shows later, Mark Opitz, now working as a talent scout for Warner Brothers Records, produced in excess breakthrough hit The One Thing. He would also produce 1982's Shabu Shabar, which saw them peak just outside the US Top 50. Here's drummer John Farris. We entered uh, into America when MTV had just started, and we'd put together, I think, you know, it was quite a good clip for the one thing, and that was getting wide uh, airplay, you know, um, and just... MTV. Yeah, on MTV, massively, and um, 
Yeah, we started to get recognised, and we weren't really used to that sort of thing. And, and especially in a country as big as America, yeah. and so far away from Australia, it was quite uh, amazing, actually. From there, in excess, would tour the US as extensively as they played around Australia. And in the studio, Mark Opitz helped refine their sound that would soon become a global soundtrack. They had a goal to rule those solo owners, you know, because they wanted to be separate from everybody else. You know, it's obviously there's be a sax solo, but that was different from a guitar solo. And, uh, you know, and riffs, yeah, we've got to have riffs. ACDC approved that. That crucial big break overseas came in 1985 when What You Need climbed into the US top five. They were also crowned best live band in the world by Musician Magazine. Here's NXS's Andrew Farris on their high standards. Chris, I think, our manager at the time called me. I was at home and he said, what do you think? And I said, oh, it's amazing, it's incredible. And I, at first, my first reaction was, geez, isn't that amazing? And then something really sort of nagged at me in the back of my head and I walked around for a while. And it's probably me because I'm crazy. And I sat down for a while and I thought, I know what it is. Now you've done that, you have to go and do it again. Otherwise, the only place is down. I guess if you're going to go to this album... The next album we do, it's got to be as good, if not better than that. And Kirk Pangilly backed up that singular vision. We actually sort of left, you know, finished up Listen Like Thieves, uh, you know, with, with more or less departing words, you know, let's, let's make the proper album next time. That motivated Andrew and Michael Hutchins to write the album that would sell over 20 million copies, 1987's Kick. Here's Michael Hutchins on the pressure that fueled them. Yeah, I remember these meetings where we say, well, what do we do? Do we start, you know, being really conscious and really thinking about what music people, you know, people are going to like? I mean, do we end up in that sort of barrel, which that's something that we really don't, we're not interested in at all, really? Or do we just have the conviction just to make the album? That was the pressure, you know, to make the album that we really wanted to make. And that's the pressure, really. It's not what you think it is. It's more like, can we just stick to ourselves and stick to what we want to do, you know? And despite Kick containing four consecutive US top ten hits, Need You Tonight, Devil Inside, New Sensation and Never Tear Us Apart, their American label initially rejected the album. Here's Kirk Pengilly confirming one of the biggest record company mistakes since that poor sod who passed on the Beatles. Chris took the uh, the Kick album uh, to, you know, the heads of Atlantic and played it to them and was sort of smartly offered a million dollars for us to go and re-record it. They felt there wasn't any hits on it. So, while In Excess had succeeded in conquering America, Australia's biggest rock band couldn't replicate the feat. By the early 80s, Cold Chisel absolutely dominated Australian radio with hit after hit, including Cheap Wine, My Baby, Flame Trees and Forever Now. They wrote Australian stories which Australians sang back to them at gigs. Here's Lee Simon on how Chisel resonated with the country. You didn't need to be a pre-existing fan of their brand of music. They drew people in who were fans of all sorts of different styles of music. There was a loyalty to Chisel that other bands also enjoyed, but they were a very elite group of performers. A lot of bands that we experienced in the 80s were going to Cold Chisel gigs as high school students and realising, oh, hang on a minute, that's where the bar is set and that's what we need to aim for. So, naturally, Cold Chisel went to America as the next big thing from Australia. But things didn't go to plan, as Jimmy Barnes explains with a glimpse of how record companies ran in the 80s. We uh, did one show in Los Angeles, and the guy who was in charge of marketing Cold Chisel for the whole of America, that was our only show where he could see us, and we were in his office that day, uh, 
And he uh, he wasn't going to come to our only show. And I asked why. And he said he had to go to some famous DJ's dog's birthday party. And we thought, you are kidding. So we did our show. And he turned up late. And uh, and he missed the show. But he came out the back just as we came off. And I was, like, pumped and, you know, raging. And, and he sort of got me in a corner. And it was he was trying to sort of, you know, redeem himself by sort of... He offered me a big bottle of cocaine. He said, oh, do you do this? And he said, don't tell any of the other boys, keep it quick, secret. So I just grabbed it out of his hand and went out to the front row who were all leaning on the, on the front of the desk and, and tipped it on the floor and said, hey, any of you guys do this shit, you know? And, uh, and then went back and picked him up by the scruff of the neck and threw him out the dressing room and told him not to be a one. Uh, and basically, you know, you do that sort of things to American record companies, they don't really get behind you that much. <laughs> the tension within the band remained, not helped by having to maintain the momentum of success at home, without the opportunity to branch into other markets. You know, there's certain things that I do, I'm sure, that drive Ian and, and Don nuts and, and Steve, you know, like whether it be pushing tempos or, or you know, just want to, you know, be aggressive all the time. And there's certain things that they do, you know, that, and, you know, that, and that's that tension within the band is what makes it exciting, I think. And that's what, you know, that, that comes out in the sound of the band. Producer Mark Opitz remembers how Cold Chisel started splitting apart creatively by the early 80s. Steve was... You know, and he was fighting with Jimmy, and he was fighting with everyone, and so I could see this incredible bond starting to fracture, which is only natural because they've been together for such a long time, and, and it's like all of us, you know, when we're teenagers, we're yeah, all together, all as one, but as we grow older and get into our twenties and and mid twenties, we start to peel off a bit because you know we start to have our girlfriends and our permanent partners. And, and we're influenced by all of a sudden we've got money, so that takes us different ways as well. And, and and you could see that thing just sort of going like that, just fracturing. Opitz, who'd seen Barnsley through his darkest days of drink and drugs, told us there was a secret fueling his trademark volatility. Jimmy's volatile nature had come, and you couldn't tell, but it was lack of confidence. And so Jimmy, you know, he was totally confident on stage and all that sort of stuff, but he had anger management issues, I guess. And so he was ready to, to go out on his own. At the time when, when cultures were starting to uh, crumble, which is a lot to do with myself because at that point I was, I thought it was time to move on. And, uh, you know, we, we'd all be, we'd been together for that long time. And, you know, we, um, we figured that, uh, you know, we'd learned as much as we could from each other, particularly from, I thought I'd learned as much as I could and I had to go and work with new musicians and, and get new stimulus. Here's Barnsley's mate, Chris Chaney. Yeah, Jimmy is a uh, anomaly. Is that the word? <laughs> There's just, uh, there's no one like him. And just to see, yeah, how he has kind of navigated this career, the ups and the downs, I mean, it's pretty well documented in his books and in his, um, you know, he did that great show where he just came out and just spoke to the audience about, you know, the rocky road that his life has been. And it's, um, yeah, it's inspirational, I suppose, because it's easy in this business to, to go down the wrong path and to fall into those traps and, and no one has done it more spectacularly than him but he's he's as tough as nails and, he, and family comes first and he's fought his way back and not only in his personal life but in his professional life, you know, he's, he's still having hit records so I don't know how he does it but it's just, um, he's just, he's the real deal. To nobody's surprise, Jimmy Barnes launched a solo career which exploded in the mid-80s with Working Class Man. Don Walker and Ian Moss also branched out on their own. 
Steve Presswich would work with John Farnham first in Little River Band and then in his touring band from 1986. Farnham even covered Chisel's classic When the War Is Over. At that point, Farnsey had pulled off the most successful comeback in Australian music history. Manager Glenn Wheatley had seen Farnham playing RSL clubs in the early 80s. He'd mortgaged his own house to fund the Whispering Jack album and the hit You're the Voice. It's still the highest selling homegrown album in our chart history. Farnsey recalls driving with wife Jill to play the album to his record label. Honestly, it was, she put me in the car because we'd had to sell everything. We were living in a rented house. We didn't own anything. We mm. couldn't pay the butcher. We couldn't pay the you know we couldn't go to we couldn't go to dinner. It was it was really mm. ugly there for a while, and uh, I was seriously I was in the fetal position underneath the front seat while she drove, crying like a a baby. And you're the voice has transformed into an Australian anthem. Here's Matty O'Gorman. It's still as incredibly powerful now as it was when it was released. In 1986, incredibly well written. The lyrics, the structure and the production. And it's from the get-go. You're hooked in straight away. Glenn Wheatley, who'd started his career in the Masters Apprentices, was also one of the businessmen behind a new player in the 80s, Commercial FM Radio. Good morning, Melbourne. It's one past midnight. This is 92.3 EON FM. I'm Peter Grace and this is the beginning of a long, long time. In Melbourne, Eon FM launched in July 1980, christening the airwaves with the Eagles' new kid in town. The late Glenn Wheatley had broken a group he was managing, Little River Band, via FM radio in the US. But it would take winning over politicians, as he told Triple M's Matty O'Gorman a few years ago. I was coming back to Australia, and I'm still listening to 3XY, all AM radio, saying, why don't we have FM radio? Yeah. So, mate, for the next two years, I walked Parliament House carpet threadbare, trying to convince every politician I could run into why we needed to have FM radio in Australia. The problem was we'd given the FM band away 50 years ago to fire police and ambulance, the essential services. So I had to convince everybody, we should put the essential services up in UHF where they belong. Mm. We free up the FM band and we've got a whole new business. I finally convinced the government of that rationale and so the tenders came out and I won the first tender for Melbourne uh, being Eon FM and we were the first station, FM station, to go to air. In 1988, Eon would rebrand as Triple M, giving Australian bands massive exposure, as Lee Simon recalls. FM was pure music. Uh, There was nothing else at the time throughout the 80s and it was a much more defined uh, package of music Uh, that FM stations went for. It became much more specialised. Hi, I'm Peter from The Oils. Just like their pub circuit mates in excess, Midnight Oil would transcend cult status to become chart toppers at home, as well as an international success story. Michael's dad and my dad knew one another from back in the day. They, They were sort of in the same area of business in Sydney. So we had that connection, which was an interesting one, which went back as well. But look, once they played with us, they're probably the only support act that the Oils have had where you finish the night thinking, you know what, that support act didn't need to be the opening act, they could have been the closing act, you know. And especially once they found their rhythm and they found their voice and he found his voice. Now, like Cold Chisel, Midnight Oil were the kind of band who attracted those hardcore super fans, which meant that sometimes the artist opening for these bands had to play to an audience waiting for their absolute favourite group to take the stage. One up-and-coming artist who found himself on the wrong end of these bands' devoted fans was a young Paul Kelly. Oh, yeah. The two hardest bands to support back in the 80s were Cold Chisel and Midnight Oil. Um, you would just... For Midnight Oil, you would hear the, the chant, Oils, Oils, Oils. And uh, Cold Chisel, I specifically remember what, 
one show somewhere in Sydney, and the audience was really close. And and uh, there was this couple of guys at the front while we were playing, and they were just and they you know you know shaved heads. They were just going, "Fuck off, fuck off, fuck off," all through our set. So sometimes sometimes with those support shows, it was just you wanted to get off as soon as you could. <laughs> Peter Garrett of Midnight Oil remembers those days and those very loyal crowds. I mean, I'm glad that Paul can laugh about it now, but he probably wasn't thinking too fondly about it at the time. Yeah, look, the crowds, particularly, you know, young guys in their sort of late, early to late teens, a lot of release of, you know, hormonal energy and and and, and very fiercely def- defending their bands and not particularly open-minded about what was happening before. You know, we used to sort of say to people, look, hang on, give, give everybody an even break here, you know. But the manic level of uh, support uh, for us and Chisel, probably the two clear examples, was, was pretty intense. By 1986, the Oils were touring Outback Australia and playing to remote Aboriginal communities and seeing their poor living standards. The next year, their album Diesel and Dust would put Australia's treatment of its Indigenous population on global radio. When Beds Are Burning was top 10 in the UK and top 20 in the US, Peter Garrett said he was proud of the oil's legacy and using their platform to raise awareness. We are proud of what we've done and we're not, we're not hiding you know, away from the fact that we think that the songs are important songs and we want people to hear them at least and think about them. For us, I know that Australia's First Nations, First Cultures, Aboriginal cultures, whatever term you want to use, history was something that if we could get right and fix up, fix something which was clearly a wrong, then there was no limit to what we could do as a nation, you know. That was really, that's really the message that underlies Beds of Burning. It's the sort of thing that you say to your kids in school. Hey, little Johnny, you know, don't hit such and such over the head just because you want their lolly. Don't rip it off them. That's not the way forward, you know. We can't have a society that works that way. We certainly can't build a nation in that way, particularly with the first people in the nation. So even though Beds sort of made its way in terms of popularity by a slightly strange route um, and got onto radio in the States and then got played on MTV and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's a big moment for us to get a song like that away. As the 80s drew to a close, the music industry was cashed up with people spending millions on CDs and concert tickets. Australian artists were able to tap into the international market like never before. And two of our most successful musical exports of the decade, Michael Hutchins from In Excess and soap star turned pop singer Kylie Minogue, had fallen in love by the end of the 80s. We see each other as two people and we met and, and strangely enough we got along and it was, you know, it was kind of a surprise for both of us actually. In Excess would enter the 90s still coasting in stadium mode, but there was a new back to basics musical movement coming that would shake up even the biggest bands and change the landscape. The inner city bands kind of just arrived like a tsunami and became the mainstream. I'm Dave Gleeson, and you've been listening to These Days, the greatest moments in Australian music. Audio production by Mike Santos. It was written by Cameron Adams and produced by Georgie Page. Special thanks to Peter Garrett, Paul Kelly, Colin Hay, Lee Simon, FIFA Riccobono, Matty O, Chris Cheney, Cat Lynch, and Marco Pitts. Listener.